This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome in a new episode of Radar, our Nextworks podcast. Um, this month, in this episode, we're again here with five people. I have Peter Hinsen here, Pascal Coppens, I have Laurence, I have Julie. And uh, myself as your host, and we're going to talk about 10 topics that excited us or that we are more curious about and things that happened in the last month that we want to share with all of you. But before we start, just a few uh, questions from our side. If you like our podcast, feel free to give us a rating in the App Store or in Spotify or any platform that you're using. Share it with your friends. And one thing that we want to add this month is that if you have a question for us about a certain topic or something that you saw in the news, just drop us a tweet or a LinkedIn message, and we will answer that question then in the next episode of Radar. So if you have any questions for us, just let us know. Okay, let's start with our first topic, and we're going to start with two topics in the retail world. Uh, Peter, we're going to start with you. The online supermarket picnic, they raised this month $600 million. And what was remarkable is that one of their new investors is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Can you tell us what happened there? So maybe a little bit of a counter there, Stephen. It's not just an online supermarket. It's actually a delivery vehicle more than anything else. And what is fascinating is it's a company that's only started in 2015 by four Dutch guys. And they've now just raised indeed $600 million in their Series D. So they have grown like crazy. But what they basically do is they have a fleet of electrical vans and they deliver at your home. So this is really uh, almost the modern day equivalent of the old uh, milk truck, if you remember when you were a kid. I remember when I was raised by my grandmother, when I was very, very small, there would be you know, somebody delivering bread and somebody delivering milk. And this is the modern day equivalent of that. This is basically an electric van that drives around and you can buy very fresh produce and groceries. They claim to actually be the most environmentally friendly retailer in the world. They have 200 locations in the Netherlands at the moment where they operate. And now they really want to expand throughout Europe. They want to use the $600 million to get into France, to get into Germany. And I think it was really fascinating to see that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that we typically know to do amazing stuff, but typically in developing nations where they focus on, for example, financial inclusion, you know, where a billion people are unbanked or they focus on, you know, fighting epidemics all around the world. Now they're focusing on Europe, which might mean that they <laughs> finally realize that Europe is a developing you know, region. That could be the case. But in this case, they really want to stimulate this idea of putting retail onto the track of being extremely environmentally friendly. And that's why they landed um, on Picnic. It's a really interesting company. I don't know if you've ever seen one of their electric vehicles running around, mm -hmm. but in the Netherlands, they've become quite a familiar face. And um, I think it's fascinating that this company that is growing so quickly, I mean, you know, just six years ago, they had their first you know, delivery. Now they're raising $600 million in what I think is a record time. What is fascinating, of course, is that this is a mass market home delivery system for a fast moving consumer. And what they claim is, you know, the same uh, sharpness in terms of prices that you would have in the supermarket, but you don't have to go to the supermarket anymore. They deliver it for free. And because they're really connected to an ecosystem of local producers, they claim that they can give you the best product at the best quality price and in the convenience of your home. And honestly, I think they did a tremendous growth spurt in the last 18 months because a lot of people were at home. Mm -hmm. And of course, they really profited also from Corona. It's going to be fascinating to see if that method sticks, if people are you know, open-minded to receive this. But I thought it was a, a worthwhile, interesting development to look at. It's going to be interesting to battle between all these delivery systems. If you look at the growth of Picnic, uh, but also the growth of like Gorillas, that is then a German-based company that is now expanding to, to Belgium and Holland and other countries that claims to do a 10-minute delivery of groceries that you buy. So at this moment, I have the feeling that many of them are fighting for the same market share and that this is going to be the next battlefield for online commerce, uh, the really last mile delivery. So do you think, Peter, that the fact that Amazon has recently entered the Dutch market, could that be a challenge for them? 
No, I mean, this is really about fresh products. And I think Amazon's been in the Netherlands for a little bit now. I mean, they've done quite well. But um, I think Amazon is battling it out against the bold.coms of this world. But this is really a completely new concept that is more battling against the traditional retailers. And I think the traditional retailers are going to have to figure out if they're going to use the same techniques of the picnics and the gorillas to figure out how to get stuff to their customers. But I really see it more as an, a fight with the traditional retailers who are probably going to have to rethink their concept. Yeah, and Amazon, if you look at their strategy in the Netherlands, I think that it's a price strategy. My two sons recently wanted to buy some games uh, or some toys with their own private money. And then they started to compare prices. And uh, Amazon.nl is like always 10% cheaper than Bold.com for the categories that they looked in. So I think they really want to get market share by just being the cheapest one in the market. I actually believe that this could be a, a big trend in Europe, just looking at what happened in China the last two years. Pretty much every company was fighting for this business. This uh, last mile delivery of groceries is really one of the biggest trends in China and working very, very well. The main difference maybe is that in China, you see it's all linked to big platforms, uh, Alibaba, JD and other platforms, Meituan, Pindodo. And so I feel like in Europe, it's more driven by new companies that are actually going into that market. But the trend is definitely uh, the big battle in China. It's all about that. It's all about trying to figure out how to get fresh produce to the consumer. Uh, it's also the most difficult part of the logistics. So I'm pretty bullish that it will come at the same speed as it has been in China for the past two years. Yeah. And I agree with Peter. The real challenge will be for traditional retailers to keep up their game. And you see that they're struggling and you see that they're trying to reinvent customer loyalty. Uh, if you look to their strategy in the past 30 years, it was with loyalty cards, saving systems, getting bonus points, all those kind of things. But now uh, this month, Walgreens, the largest pharmacy retailer in the U.S., they started to expand their financial services to increase their customer loyalty. We've seen this in the past that almost every major U.S. brand has like their own MasterCard. You can have a MasterCard from Amazon, a MasterCard from any airline. But now Walgreens started with their own bank account. It's called Scarlet. And basically, if you look at the services that they offer, it's like what almost every neobank is offering. Cheap ways of payment, peer-to-peer -peer payments, also tools to do your financial management better, to set saving goals, those kind of things. Make it cheap and easy to have a positive financial management of your family's money. But on top of that, of course, they can add the value of giving financial rewards, like if you then use the bank account of uh, Walgreens, you get a 3% discount on anything that you buy at Walgreens, and you get a 1% discount on anything that you buy anywhere in the world that you then can use at Walgreens. And you know th this is one tactic, but it just shows how some of these retailers are completely trying to reinvent the way to connect their customers to them and how they're leaving their core. Uh, the core was to be cheaper, have more products, have a more beautiful store. Today, they use other services to make sure that people have some sort of a lock-in with them. And the financial services one is one that I think we're going to see much more how retailers are moving into that field to make sure that their customers stick to them. And I, I think it's interesting what Walgreens is doing. Yeah, take into account also that not too long ago, Walmart in the U.S. announced that it's setting up basically a venture capital fund to look at the future finance. And they didn't rule out that they would really want to investigate their opportunity to get into that market as well. I think what is interesting is they've tried that before. So Walmart actually opened up their own bank 14 years ago, but that didn't work. And I think the timing was different back then. I think in those days, a retailer was a retailer and a bank was a bank. Mm -hmm. I think what we're now seeing is that these lines are blurring. Uh, they're blurring more intensely and they're blurring faster. And when you look at the ambitions of Walmart in, in terms of finance, they actually said, we don't want to be yet another bank to provide financial services because they think that's a commodity. They would rather look at what the Chinese have been doing and build super apps and figure out if they can expand beyond their current offering to their customers. So it is an extreme line of blurring boundaries. One of the reasons why that is, is because it's now a lot easier to actually be able to you know, facilitate these types of services. One of the fascinating hotbeds of the future finance is India. 
And the reason is the Indian financial ecosystem is completely opened up as a result of an API, which is called UPI, which is the, the Indian access to financial services. And that means that now everybody can actually, in their environment, their digital offering, their apps can integrate these types of financial services. So the moment that we open up technologically, uh, these types of things become absolutely possible. Yeah, it's uh, interesting when you reflect on China, because you mentioned that, Peter, for a moment. Uh, the reality is that uh, a couple of years ago, every company was actually opening up their own bank account or their own bank in China. Uh, Huawei did, Meitran, uh, ByteDance. Every company wanted to become a bank. But then with the regulations that came out just uh, recently, it started with Ant Financial a year ago, the government really stepped in and said that you cannot use the data that you gather from banking to actually feed other industries like from Alibaba. And they're even splitting up wealth management now with payment systems in Ant Financial. And so what you see the reason that many of these companies opened these banks was actually to get more data from the user so they could actually feed the user with more uh, promotions and sell more to them. And that is not allowed in China anymore. And so I'm wondering if everybody going into building a bank, they will hit the same wall in a couple of years from now in, in the West because it's anti-monopoly. Uh, the monopoly position is really uh, getting jeopardized there. Uh, you're creating huge monopolies because of this data. And, and that's not something the antitrust regulators like very much. But, and that's not just a Chinese thing. I mean, the fact that the regulators in finance are starting to realize that it's not just about the payments or the transactions, but it's really about the data and how to deal with that. Regulators traditionally have been extremely good at managing traditional risks, but data risks and you know, consumer risk as a result of that is something which is a relatively new field. And they are quite aggressive on that, and not just in China. I think this is a, a global phenomenon we're going to see in the next couple of years, where the regulators really ramp up on their data knowledge and are probably going to set the bound rails or the guardrails on how to deal with this. Mm -hmm. You could also turn it around because banking as such or banks are going in the same direction, no? I mean, they are just going into different industries as well to leverage the data and to build an ecosystem, to build a super app. So to what extent are they going to regulate uh, retailers and other parties that go into banking? Yeah. But to what extent are they going to regulate banks to stick to their core business then as well? I mean, where do you draw the line then? Yeah, it's true. Like this month, KBC's mobile banking app was chosen as the best and most innovative mobile banking app in the world. And this is exactly their strategy of yeah? becoming a payment platform that helps you to go through your life in an easier way, give discounts. They have soccer, online soccer on their app. But imagine the possibilities that they have if they can grow this to maybe Belgian super app. It's a question to see how far they can go. But let's move to the next topic, guys. Let's go from banking to bankruptcy. Uh, and then I'm looking at Pascal. <laughs> I'm not bankrupt, you know. <laughs> Please, Pascal, tell us if we have to worry about the future of the world now that Evergrande is on the verge of bankruptcy. Yeah, Evergrande was the story of, of the month. The last two weeks, uh, the whole world was talking about Evergrande, which may not be Evergrande anymore, uh, because suddenly found out that they couldn't pay back the interest on the loans that they had. And so... They were looking into this company, uh, the investors, already for a year now. But many people have been talking about another Lehman Brothers moment where suddenly the whole industry or one real estate uh, company like Evergrande, which is the number two in China, but the biggest indebted bank in the world with 300 billion US dollars of debt, that's half of what Lehman Brothers had, is basically suddenly going into bankruptcy because they can't pay back the interest of the loans. And so many people were saying this is the end of the financial stability of China and could create another financial crisis worldwide. And maybe it will, because real estate has been a big problem. So why all this talk about Evergrande? Well, they are the number two in China. That means 1,300 projects in 280 cities. That's 1.5 million homes right now that are not getting finished. And so people cannot get into their homes. But it's also they grew way too fast, this company. They own the Guangzhou football team. I don't know if you know that, together with Alibaba, the number one football team in China. I know it's not very popular uh, out here, but in China, football is the crazy thing and uh, maybe as crazy as in Belgium. And they went into this, they went into mineral water, solar panels, baby formula, things like amusement parks, wellness centers, electrical vehicles. I mean, you name it. They went into every possible industry that you could imagine and even wealth management, which is also 
in a big risk right now. But the biggest issue is that the real estate in China has been under a tremendous pressure already for the past two decades. I remember when I, I lived in China 20 plus years ago, in 1996, the first time I went there, if I would have bought the apartment that I was living in back then, it would have been the price of a garage box in Brussels. Today, it's more than a million euro, that same apartment. And so, yeah, the real estate bubble is not something fictional. It's real. It's, it's a huge issue because of speculation, because of property developments and cities that poured money into this. And uh, the biggest issue in China, which is not often talked about, but this is really where the government is trying to figure out how to deal with it, is that a lot of these properties from Evergrande, they couldn't finish it, or there was undeveloped land, or there were problems, and they never wrote down these properties as a loss, which means they kept on the books as an asset. And so the assets were always bigger than the liabilities, even last year, despite the fact that they were having 300 billion in debt at that point. And so this exploded just last month because they couldn't pay back their interests, the interest on the loans. And so this means that everybody was asking, will Beijing bail them out? That was the big question, because if they don't, this could be a domino effect where every property developer is now getting affected. It affects so many things. I mean, there's financial risk uh, for companies that are involved. There's a lot of deposits from all these buyers that haven't gotten their apartment yet. So now Evergrande has started to give them like garage boxes to pay for their deposits because they can't give them the apartments or finish the apartments because they don't get new loans. Suppliers are not getting paid. The wealth management is under pressure. But you have to imagine Evergrande is a company with 200,000 employees and 3.8 million people that work on their projects in China. So this is, is more than just a little risk. This could be really derailing the financial system. But already more than uh, two years, three years ago, China's government has really targeted these big property developments. And uh, Wanda was one of them, which bought half of Hollywood. And then at one point, uh, they had to sell all their assets because it became too big. But you also saw a year ago that they were starting to monitor and control all the property developers. And Evergrande started to sell off all their properties at discounts, 25% discounts. And this created, of course, other problems. They own money with 120 foreign banks. So it's not just a local problem. It's a global problem. And then there's 170 domestic banks. And right now, as we know, Beijing is not really uh, favorable to uh, tycoons. Uh, so uh, bailing them out would be the wrong signal because then there's another 20 tycoons that would be there. Please bail me out. So that's not going to happen. So how are they going to solve it? And so the most likely outcome for this is that the state-owned banks are going to help them to cushion this and to avoid a real credit crunch in, in China. And they're probably going to nationalize a lot of their assets and a lot of their properties over time, because that seems to be the only solution right now. But everybody kind of agrees in China there's not going to be a bailout because it would be the wrong signal. And so they're going to do this step-by-step -step interest by interest that had to be paid back. They're going to figure out how can we pay back these people and still and then own a little bit more property, even if it's not finished. So big thing. But um, I think this is probably the number one challenge that China has on their hands right now. And it's been ongoing for a long time. But it's also if they can get through this one, I think it will make China extreme uh, stable when it comes to all their bubbles that they're having. So. But does that mean, uh, Pascal, that this is going to be like a solution that will take years before they are able to solve this? It's going to take a long time, not just because of the size, but also because of the complexity of this company, Evergrande, because they're in so many industries, so many people involved. I mean, 280 cities, that means 280 mayors that need to be involved. And so it's, it's a really complicated structure that need to be uh, decomposed somehow and, and figured out what to do with it. And this is kind of like their moment to prove that they can. And if they can, they can then repeat, copy paste for other property developers that will follow probably over time. Uh, not all of them are in the same situation as Evergrande, of course. Could this boost the further nationalization of other companies too? And have uh, the control be bigger on the companies? No, but it's something you've seen quite often, and it's a concern for foreign investors, is that when a company like Evergrande is in trouble and the government tries to help them to get through it, then they start nationalizing and taking more control over this company because there's no other solution than to do that. 
And that, of course, for foreign investors, it scares them. And this has happened with banks before as well. So investing in Chinese companies, the upside can be very big, but the risk is always that one point it's uh, the government who's more in control, not because they want to, but because uh, the companies have gone out of proportion. Exactly that uphill or that proportion that the investors wanted to believe in to make more money. And so this is kind of like uh, the more money you can make from China, the bigger the risk. At one point, it goes wrong. <laughs> you talked about the real estate's pressure in China, but I think you, you see this everywhere in the world because everybody's always talking about COVID and digitalization. But COVID also has, I think, a huge impact on real estate and office prices, but also on home prices. For instance, in the Netherlands, the home prices are insane. And uh, in Belgium, too, they have risen a lot. Yep. You, you don't see that in China because COVID was not affected as long. Um, it's only a couple of months, three, four months that people really had to, to work from home. Uh, so you don't see that as much. But you have to realize the real estate business in China is about 15 to 20 percent of the GDP of China. So it's not something that you figure out in a weekend. It's a big, big, big challenge. Let's look at what future cities could look like at, at the other side of the world. As Julie, you got really excited about a wild plan of a U.S. billionaire, Mark Lore, who is trying to envision the new city in America where five million people could live. And he described it as the cleanliness of Tokyo, the diversity of New York and the social services of Stockholm. Is this a Fata Morgana that he has or is this something real, Julie? I think it's pure uh, day after tomorrow thinking if you look at the Evergrande um, situation. What's fascinating is the polarity of how are we going to create a sustainable collaborative future. But in the meantime, it's built on short-term finance capitalism system. And it's sort of colliding there. While Toulouse is an example, that is not real yet. I mean, it's not there yet. And the ambition is that it will be a city by 2050. So it's really long-term thinking, envisioning like what will life be? What will work be back then? And which city do we need for that instead of the other way around? Um, so I think that's a really fascinating take on that. Yeah. And Mark, Mark Laurie, for those who don't know him, he's a really fascinating man, just turned 50, lives in New York, super rich. Uh, and he, he always refers to his youth where uh, he says, when I was four uh, years old, uh, I told people I want to be a farmer because I I just want to grow things from nothing. And that's basically also what he did. He's the founder of diapers.com, which was then sold to Amazon, worked there for two years. And he founded jet.com, which was sold to Walmart for 3.3 billion. So Laurie just made headlines as the highest paid executives in America. So you, you can really see him understanding new industries, growth within the e-commerce system. And then I think it's fascinating that somebody like that just goes away from that business race and says, I want to do something different, a multi-decade project, building a city of the future. And what's fascinating, he calls it a supported by a reformed version of capitalism. So no details there yet, but I think it's, it's fascinating to watch how people, individual people are approaching that. And so the city itself as well is a very collaborative idea. Um, the idea is that people, business, government, and the community as such will basically work together to build that system. So there will be freedom to build initiatives, institutions, buildings in that city, but the land itself will remain city-owned. So the whole idea of the city is based on values like openness, fairness, inclusiveness. And I think it's cool to see how they approach a city with like the same principles as of a business. That's not something we've seen before where you usually have business actors, businesses, they have to make profits. And here you, you see a different approach, like what if we want to build a city, a future that kind of makes sense on all perspectives there. And uh, of course, there's a lot of questions, I think, like what will it look like? How will that work? But starting from that big vision uh, and then working back from it, I think it's fascinating to see that there are people stepping up to do that and to build towards that, to search for allies in that big vision. Yeah, it reminds me to the Woven project of Toyota, where they're also building a new city in Japan close to Mount Fuji. And what I like about that is Toyota is the biggest car manufacturer in the world, and they're actually building a city without cars there because they believe that our current cities are really made to make the car function in an effective way. And we completely failed that because all cities are congested like crazy. So they're like the future of cities is going to be built around humans and make sure that people can work together and that they still have services and logistic services 
but not in the way like we used to have them. And it's cool to see that at, at multiple sites, they're experimenting with this at this point. But maybe uh, just as a small side note, it's not because you have an ambition that you want to build a future that you're capable of doing it. And I think this is something that I find fascinating throughout history. We've seen this a number of times. I mean, just recently, one of the most wonderful failed experiments was, for example, what the Google guys wanted to do with Toronto. Mm -hmm. I remember the excitement we all had around the concept of sidewalk labs, where they would use data and algorithms to build a city of the future and renovate part of Toronto to bring it into the 21st century. That was a completely failed initiative. And I think it shows that it's not so easy to actually get into that complexity of building cities. My favorite story in that is, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but uh, Gillette that we know from the razor blades. The person who founded Gillette was not just a really clever businessman, he was a bit of a futurist as well. So when he started Gillette, you know, his company went through the roof. It was like you know, the, the Google of those days. I mean, it was incredibly valuable. And he said, well, you know, now that we've covered you know, shaving, I want to focus on cities. And it's a wonderful story because he said, it's terrible. I mean, we have to reinvent cities. And the original idea of a metropolis came from Gillette. And he wanted to build mega cities of millions of people where people would actually be in skyscrapers. And he would actually want to make sure that people couldn't just build a house out in the country anymore. No, he said, the country is for recreation only. And his ideas were deemed so dangerous by the Gillette board that they actually relieved him from all his executive duties and said, why don't you go and live in Palm Springs where he could think about the future, but you know, keep away from cities and just they could focus on razor blades to make a profit. So it's not so easy to go from one industry and recreate a city. Nobody said it would be easy, I think. This is a great podcast to address that, I guess, to say, hey, uh, inventing the future is not easy. But I get very enthusiastic about the fact that individual people are taking the leadership to have a vision about it. And of course, it won't be like it is presented right now. But just engaging in that discussion of what do we actually want to build is fascinating, I think. And we should keep that momentum. I think the difference with Sidewalk Labs, Peter, is that Sidewalk Labs was Google coming in. I got excited about it, but it was mainly about using data to optimize the city logistics, basically. I think the example that, that Julie is describing and like Woven City are going one step further where they completely rethink the experience of living somewhere. And I think the most exciting you know, that I see at this moment is what is happening in Saudi Arabia, the city of Neom. I've had the pleasure to engage with them on a few occasions, but this is a completely new city that is being built out into the Arabian desert that is completely built on a new vision of sustainability. And of course, there you have both the funding and the place to put something like that. Mm -hmm. So I think it is going to be fascinating to see that come together. But if I just see the amount of money that is being poured into Neom at this moment, where they are attracting some of the smartest people on the planet to help build a completely new city, it's incredible how cash intensive that is. I mean, it's Evergrande is peanuts compared to what you need to build something like Neom. Imagine that we want to build a new city in Belgium. Where would we put it? In the ocean. <laughs> in the ocean, yeah. I just wanted to add something. You have actually two ways of building better cities. You have the startup way, which is like this one is creating a new city. And then you have more the corporate way, which is reinventing an existing city. And the, the only question that I have is if the mission of this Stelosa city is to create a more equitable and sustainable future, can you do that, really do that by building new cities? And sure, all uh, cities have legacy architecture, But is it not more sustainable to start a project from an existing city? I think the analogy in a house is everybody who's ever built a house or renovated a house knows that if you renovate a house, it's three times more expensive than building a new one. So I think it probably goes for cities as well. It's true. It's more expensive. But I'm not talking about expensive. I'm, I'm talking about more sustainable, better for the environment. I believe that uh, you still need to show examples of future cities, even to review and relook at existing cities. And my favorite city is, of course, one in Shenzhen. I'm not biased, <laughs> uh, but it's the one from uh, Tencent, the net city. But I do believe that the real challenge is indeed building it. And that's where you have to work, even if you're a startup or you want to build the vision of the future, 
You have to work together with the governments. You have to work together with the property developers. And that's where in China you see this going at lightning speed just because they know how to build cities. And when you see that there's like 63% of the population that is urban in China, but it's going to 70 and 80%, you still need new cities as well. Even if it's just as an example to show how it should work for existing cities. And, and talking about that, Shanghai 30 years ago, when I went there the first time, I saw a plan of Shanghai for the future. And if you look today, it's, it's more than 80% what they've envisioned. And so, yes, it was an existing city. It doubled in population, but it's much more sustainable now than it was back then. Yeah, I totally agree. I think these types of flagship projects, I mean, look at corporate innovation, where it's not so easy to kind of change current practices in your company. Like, I think the same counts for a city where it might make sense to learn a lot in a new sort of prototype city and then leverage those technologies into existing uh, structures. Okay, let's go to the next topic, guys. We um, have quite some topics about social media and big tech coming. And, and Pascal, I would like to start with you. There's an issue in China right now. There's an issue around the world with the cancel culture. But in China, it's going out of hand is what I've seen. And the government is now imposing rules to make sure that social media is not exploding in a negative way and is not, you know, um, creating negative thoughts and negative energy among youngsters. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, the cancel culture, uh, I mean, it's a global phenomenon. It's, mm -hmm. it's not just about China, but uh, it's, it's really when there's some offensive statements of celebrities or companies or anyone that uh, basically should not be doing something. And then often there are called out these people and canceled by the social media mob, you could call them. Uh, and in China, it's gone really crazy. And this is already since 2018 that it's, it's been going very bad. Specifically, it started with Dolce & Gabbana back in 2018 when they made a, an ad where a girl was uh, eating some noodles with chopsticks. And this was a cultural no-go for China. And so many people who bought Dolce & Gabbana went on the streets to burn their clothes and, and, and really say, never ever buy this brand again. So that was one of the first moments that we realized the power of the consumer in China the power of also fans in later on when it was all about reality shows. The past 10 years, China has gone crazy about reality shows, which is the same in the West. And this was all about rankings. And so if you were a celebrity or wanted to become a celebrity, you just needed higher rankings. So you need more votes. That means they were campaigning for votes and getting fans to get more votes for them, get online byproducts from them. This went into live streaming the past three, four years, which is the biggest trend in China today. And now it's not so much about the ranking only, it's also about money. So if you rank high as a celebrity, you can make huge amount of money from brands that you can promote online. And so that means it's all about data these days. And so the more that these fans are actually helping the celebrities, the more that these celebrities are making money. And so the celebrities are taking advantage very often of, of young fans that think they are doing a good thing. And so they've been raising money for the fans. Uh, was kind of a pyramid selling that it became in China on a huge scale. They've been promoting products, just buying. Like there was one story about bottled milk that one of the celebrities uh, was endorsing. And um, millions of small bottles of milk were bought. And then they threw them away. Uh, they didn't even drink them. And so this went viral as an environmental problem. There's cyber violence in China that is going crazy between fans. So fans will actually use tactics against other celebrities that are competing with their celebrity to actually kill them off online. There's even training courses to follow how to kill other celebrities. And, and so it's, it's going completely wild. Then later uh, this year, actually, uh, and last year, it started becoming political. This is something that uh, we don't see as much in the West, but uh, specifically with Hong Kong first, the NBA was targeted. Uh, the Houston Rocket general manager uh, said free Hong Kong, and this was a big, big no-go in China, which means that uh, the NBA had problems entering China and continuing. Then it was all about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs. And so any company in the West, uh, like H&M, like Nike, Zara, buying or stopping to buy cotton from that region, People weren't buying their clothes anymore in China. And so it became very political. And so a lot of uh, fans started promoting or supporting the government to protect the Chinese culture, the Chinese identity, the Chinese propaganda, if you could call it. Uh, that's what they call it in the West. 
And so this became political, but it's also the last month that it, it completely went out of proportion. And so every week you had kind of one celebrity that was cancelled almost. Chris Wu is uh, one of the famous examples. This was the Me Too, because not many people know there's a, a real Me Too movement in China. Zhang Sheng, which was about taxes, uh, Zhang Zhehang, and sure you know all these people. It was about uh, visiting the shrine in Japan, which is, is basically remembering the death, but not uh, accepting the fact that uh, some of them were uh, war criminals in China. So a big, big political thing as well. So all these people, they do one thing without knowing it sometimes that it's it's such a big effect afterwards. And then they get cancelled within days or minutes. And so the government has stepped in and the government has said this is going way too far. And so the anti-graph body in China has now put a crackdown on misconduct on social media. I mean, we know China is famous for censorship, but now it's not just about what you can say. It's about what you do online towards other celebrities or to support your own celebrities. You can't raise money anymore as easily as before for fans. That's not allowed. Doxing, trolling, but also celebrities cannot show that they're very wealthy anymore. If they show too much wealth and flaunt it and basically say, I'm better off than everybody else, that is no-go as well. And then China is very famous for bots, using bots to, to hike traffic online. So they have like a, a million cell phones all trying to do the same thing to get the traffic up. And so this is now getting watched in China. And so it creates a situation where accounts and celebrities are getting cancelled by the government now since shortly. But also platforms, imagine a Tencent or an Alibaba or a ByteDance that, that would support this uh, fan culture that is toxic in a way could get uh, cancelled at least for some time if they don't uh, solve it. So this is, of course, creating a lot of uh, reaction in the West, what's, what's happening. But it's interesting to see that the same situation is happening everywhere around the world. But if this goes too far, are Western governments able to step in is the question that I'm always asking, because for China, it's very obvious. And most people in Chinese actually support that there is some limits that is okay and not healthy, healthy and not healthy. It's one of the big challenges, not just in China, but everywhere, I think. I, I speak to a lot of companies these days that are really worried about this, that they would say the wrong thing and that then a small army of online people would attack them and destroy their brand reputation and that you would have like an online catfight between the fans that try to protect the brand and then others that are trying to attack it. It's not easy yeah, because it has to do with all sensitive topics. It's all about racism, about sustainability. Yep. Um, and, and if you say something that is a little bit out of the tone of what some people expect, you get a full force attack. And, and I see a lot of companies that are now deciding to say nothing because that seems to be the safest solution, which is a pity because on all of these topics, those big companies, they can have a very positive influence on society, but a lot of them are afraid because, you know, if they just get it a little bit wrong or if someone tells them, hey, you're not perfect yet, you're saying this, but two years ago you did that and then it blows up in their face. So I, I think this is a very challenging and, and very negative evolution at this point. Yeah, it's, it's a global challenge. Uh, and, it is. And, and I just think that, uh, that China is kind of leading this problem and also solving it first. Is that going to be the right way to solve it? Maybe not, but that is one way to solve it, is, is to get one organization, which in this case is, is the government, that is trying to maintain that it goes beyond the, the, the normal situation so that it sure. becomes so unhealthy that everything derails. Yeah, true. And also maybe there's a responsibility for the platforms. Huh? If, if you then look to the West, we have Facebook, that is by far the largest platform, not just in the West, but in, in many other countries as well. And then again, uh, Laurence, you dived into this. Huh? This month, again, Facebook was in a bad storm about their honesty, basically, about what the impact of the platform is. Apparently, Facebook has much more data about the negative impact on their platform and what it does to people's minds, but they're not honest about it and they're not acting upon it. At least that's what the Wall Street Journal was stating, Lawrence. So indeed, the Wall Street Journal recently published a, a series of, of stories about Facebook that were based on internal documents, which showed some pretty toxic flaws on, on the company's platforms. And um, basically the four most important ones are these. Um, the fact that um, standard moderation rules on Facebook do not apply to celebrities who can basically post whatever they want. There's the fact that Instagram is problematic for mental health of younger users. Facebook has also trouble controlling the fact that it is used for human trafficking. 
and last but not least, the, the changes that Facebook made in 2018 to its algorithm to increase engagement also increased disinformation and the sharing of other forms of radically bad content. Now, I'm not going to go deeper into what exactly happened. Uh, read the Wall Street Journal if you want to know more. But what I do want to talk about is that even these unicorn-type companies like Facebook aren't immune to the challenges that come with, with the scale of Phoenix companies. And, and in many ways, it has been making the type of mistake that we usually associate with corporates. And, and you can see this in, in four big things. There's the fact that its culture appears to be quite hierarchical, like people at a quote, unquote, lower ranks are not empowered to make important decisions. And that causes real problems like a while ago, a Facebook moderator was unable to take down revenge porn from a well-known football player because he simply lacked the authority. And another dynamic that you would rather associate with big corporates is obsessive rulemaking almost. It's like in reaction to problems, Facebook sometimes creates more rules instead of finding a real solution, like the whitelisting of celebrities. This happens because mistakes and moderations with these celebrities were highly visible. Instead of working harder to make the moderation better, they installed a new rule that celebrities would answer to different rules. Um, and number three is that it appears to be focused more on, on making the technology function better instead of trying to make the user experience better. But like I said, when it changed its algorithm in 2018 to boost the decreasing engagement, the result was that it pushed more outrageous content and instead of content that was more relevant or pleasant for the user. So it would rather focus on better algorithms than on the well-being of its users. And um, the last one is that it focuses more on its image than on higher purpose. Facebook is actually a very PR-driven and untransparent company, and the internal research uncovered that it only tends to act on problems when a real PR crisis happens. In other words, it pretty much goes the extra mile only when its customers or, or investors get mad or worried. And to conclude, I firmly believe that companies who ignore significant problems like mental health and inequality or polarization and who are not trying to build a better world will make themselves irrelevant in the end. It's pretty much what Stephen has been writing about with the offer you can't refuse with the saving the world concept. And we see this evolution all around us. And I think that if you ignore that, you really get into trouble down the line. So I was wondering what your take on this was. How do you see the future of Facebook? Will they be regulated more? Will breaking them up into smaller parts be better? Will the public respond by leaving? Will Mark Zuckerberg eventually be forced out? What do you think, guys? Those are big, big, big questions, <laughs> Laurence. But um, if I pick on a few of those, I think, honestly, the complexity of managing and controlling content is something that is unprecedented. There is no rule book for that. So the fact that those guys are experimenting and trying and figuring out how to do this, I think is only logical. And it shows a couple of things. First of all, is you can't just completely rely on the technology to do it for you. And if you see the amount of manpower that Facebook has been you know, needed to throw into the mix to solve this, it is huge. So imagine that you would have to control this from a Facebook point of view, where you have flawed technology that is maturing but not extremely stable. You have a shitload of manpower to try to do this. I don't think you can just say, well, you know, you do it in a way that is self-organizing. I think you need a sense of controls and rules to make it happen. I pick up on that one element that you talked about, the rules and the hierarchical. I love the fact that we're experimenting companies with non-hierarchical systems and structures. But honestly, we've said this over and over again, that might be really great if you're in a creative environment where you want to empower people to be creative. But if you're in a cookie factory, you don't want people to be empowered to be extremely creative at the production line. And when you look at content and control of content, that is more of a factory setting than actually a creative environment. So I do believe that you need probably traditional ways to deal with that in order to have any effect on control at all. I remember, uh, Peter, that last time that we went to Facebook, a couple of years ago, they were in the middle of that storm with uh, Cambridge Analytica and everything. 
And uh, I remember this this guy telling us that they now control like 95% of the content, that 95% of the things that shouldn't be allowed on the platform are tackled and they keep them out. And then he added this one sentence that I can really relate to. He said, the only problem is the remaining 5% can cause a lot of damage. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was just in the week that they had this guy live streaming a shooting in Australia or New Zealand, where you could actually follow him for more than 10 minutes when he was killing people. That was one of the 5% items that they missed, but that was all over the news. So it goes so fast. It's so real time. The amount of content is so massive that it's extremely difficult. But the impact, of course, that they have with that is huge. Yeah? It remains their challenge. And at this point, I think since the shitstorm started with Cambridge Analytica, they haven't been able to restore that confidence yet. The good news for them is that, yeah, maybe people won't agree with this, but the users don't really care. Eh? People are all complaining about it. But since they've been in the shitstorm, I mean, the amount of users on their platform has just increased tremendously. Hashtag leave Facebook had the opposite effect, in fact. So the results are not bad. The responsibility is high. So I think they can probably do more. But I also agree with the fact that this is the most difficult thing to tackle in maybe the history of information management. What I find fascinating, I understand the complexity of managing content, which is exploding. What I don't understand with Facebook is their difficulty in controlling the quality of their advertisements because that is the bread and butter of Facebook. And this is something which I personally find extremely frustrating. As some of you might know, I am an amateur woodworker. One of the most fascinating things in woodworking is a little device called the Viking. That's a brilliant invention by a couple of, I think, Scandinavian entrepreneurs, which is the best thing that I have seen in woodworking. But because Facebook knows that I'm a woodworker, it gives me advertisements for these types of things. And on a given day, when I just scroll down, I could see four or even five fake Viking advertisements with probably Chinese companies, uh, Pascal, yeah, which are trying to con me out of 15 or $20, where the real item is $150. And even if I report to Facebook that that is an absolute scam, I just scroll down and I have another one just right there. And that is something that I find worrying because controlling a shitload of content, that is very difficult. But if your bread and butter is advertisement and they still consistently put fake advertisement on there, that is something which I cannot comprehend. Mm -hmm. I fully agree with that. And, and by the way, guys, did you see the Facebook glasses that came out uh, last week? It was a brilliant PR moment for them with, with flashing videos of Mark Zuckerberg talking about this is the future and this is the new computer platform. And um, basically, I don't know what you think, but basically it was a pair of glasses with two cameras in it and built-in earphones in a partnership with Ray-Ban, so you can take pictures and then you can talk to your glasses and say, hey, glasses, put them, or you have to say, hey, Facebook, share them with my friends. And, you know, I had to think back to 2013. And Peter, remember the hype that we saw when we went to Google with Google Glass? I mean, we had executive after executive putting on the Google Glass and they looked very futuristic. It was very difficult to control that interface. I remember you called it the Commodore 64 of augmented reality. But if you look back, I mean, that was extremely innovative. Eh? Back in 2013, you could see content. You had already first examples of mixed reality. It was difficult to work with, but the idea was really cool. If you now see eight years later that the best we can bring is a pair of glasses with a camera in it, and it's like time stood still. I think the only good thing about it and, and the smart thing is that these are, in my opinion, at the first time that you have glasses with some technology in it that actually don't look weird. It's like a normal set of Ray-Bans with extra functionalities. All the others look like crazy. I mean, I, I still have those Snapchat glasses. I never wear them because you look like the biggest fool on the planet with them. And with Google Glass, you look like some sort of a robot. And I think in the past eight years, we had like 10 of those devices on our heads. These are the first ones that actually look great. But I think they completely overblown it in terms of PR, calling these smart glasses. I mean, th this is a camera building into a pair of glasses. But if we could find something that looks as nice as these and then really has the augmented reality functionalities, I think that would be the thing that we're all waiting for. 
but maybe also if there's an application for it. I mean, it's cool to have a weird glasses on your head, but what are you going to do, do with anything. it? You yeah, know? of course. Uh, Peter, for Mission Next, we're talking to a company, Numina, in Germany, and they are building AR applications for architecture, basically, so that you can really design your house, you're building in VR, and you can just adjust, for example, hey, this is going to be in the US, or this is going to be in Iceland, or this is going to be, like, the weather conditions can be just immediately adapted to your design, like, what does that mean for your material, etc. And so the architect, the designer can kind of walk around in there and say, hey, what if I change this to wood? Or what if I change that wall or make that window bigger? Well, then we're talking useful applications. Uh, and if that's an ugly glass that you or <laughs> or something ugly you have to put on your head, okay, fine. People will maybe deal with that. But um, it has to go together, I think. Yeah, but those are, of course, niche applications. And I, I really love this. I think if you want to make it a mainstream platform, like the smartphone has become a mainstream platform, then it will have to have a, a broad set of applications and look nice at the same. I mean, it, it will have to be like the <laughs> iPhone for augmented sure. reality, basically. Yeah? In that respect, I remember, Stephen, I don't know which Apple launch it was, but we were in San Francisco and we had invited Robert Scoble. I remember that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Robert is you know, one of the leading thinkers in the, in the field of augmented reality. And he was absolutely convinced that Apple would announce their famous Apple glasses at that event. We were all there, you know, I, I, you know, we were all staring at the screen, no introduction <laughs> of the Apple glasses. Everybody was very disappointed, especially uh, Robert Scoble. But I still believe that if there is a company that you know, is capable of bringing the mm -hmm. use case, as Julie said, it might be Apple. I mean, from a technological point of view, I've been following this quite intensely. I've been probably subscribing to every Kickstarter campaign that even goes close to the next generation of AR glasses. And I think technologically, we have advanced. And to your point about the industrial side of things, I think in the enterprise side, we have seen some really great cases where AR has become quite normal. And I think if we can start to apply that to a mass product, I would still put my money on Apple to actually mm -hmm. really make the dent in that particular market. Yeah, but I would advise Apple to start in China and launch it, not just because of the amount of people that there are, because you need a big market, but also there's more Chinese wearing glasses. And that has everything to do with the fact that reading Chinese characters is just not very good for your eyes. I know everything about it. I started wearing glasses when I started studying Chinese. But also the gaming industry is being a big issue for kids. And so a lot of kids are wearing glasses in China. So that's why the government is trying to avoid this, to make a problem about gaming. And so this is all to do with markets. So I would advise Apple or Facebook just to start in China to have a much bigger market. So there's much bigger demand there. Well, pass that through, Pascal. And talking about technology companies, Peter, there was news from Uber this month that they are actually thinking that they could turn a profit in this quarter. Did you follow this? Well, Uber is one of those strange companies that if you look at Uber on the stock exchange, the market cap of Uber is $87 billion. That's quite significant for a company that has never made a profit, not even came close to a profit. I mean, if you look at the numbers, they're quite staggering. To give you an idea, since Uber was founded in 2009, the total number of losses that this company has racked up is $22 billion. So imagine that. You start a company in 2009, and you know, 12 years later, all you've done is you have $22 billion of losses. And even then, you have people on the stock exchange who say, oh, that's a pretty valuable stock, and they value it at $87 billion. It's just crazy. But they've had a really, really tough ride during the pandemic. To give you an idea, their ride-sharing dropped 80%. I mean, that is disastrous for any organization. But an organization that has never gotten close to profit, I think it's even worse. But I, I do have to say is that I think uh, the new CEO is actually doing a really, really, really good job. I mean, when he took over from the founder that basically fell over a couple of years ago. He inherited a company that was loss-making. 
um, a really difficult social situation with are the Uber drivers employees or contractors. I mean, this is a, a social thing that is a global phenomenon he has to tackle. A lot of the challenges, he really, really took that. And then COVID came. So when the ride-sharing dropped 80%, they laid off thousands and thousands of employees, but they were really bracing themselves to survive the COVID storm. Now we see that Uber is picking up again. One of the strange things is that Uber can't find enough drivers at the moment because they have an extreme shortage of drivers. Don't get me wrong, his social troubles aren't over because in the UK, for example, recently, we saw that the UK government said, no, the people who work for Uber as a driver should be treated as employees, not as contractors. So that is still not an easy situation. But with all the upswing that he had, they said, you know what? We might actually be able to make a little bit of a profit, which was a $25 million profit. Now, to put that in perspective, if you have lost 22 billion, then making 25 million in profit is not something spectacular. But the fact that they can even generate profit is spectacular. Although many, many of the financial reporters who looked at that said, well, there was a lot of artistic creativity involved in terms of fiddling with the numbers to turn that into an artificial profit. But still, the stock market was extremely happy. Their stock jumped 11% just by the announcement. It just shows that money has no value anymore in this absolutely crazy society. Uh, Peter, what do you think? I mean, they have some really big challenges. Eh? The whole thing, the social issues when everyone would become an employee is one thing. The fact that they can't find drivers is creating some sort of a negative effect right now because drivers' prices are going up at this moment. So they are becoming more expensive than traditional taxi companies. Will they be able to solve these issues? Because imagine that all these things stay. I mean, this is going to increase their costs tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. Two things that I find you know fascinating is I think the social element, this is going to be a global phenomenon that we're going to have to tackle mm -hmm. because it's the platform economy which is tapping into a labor market where today we still separate the labor market into black and white. You're either an employee or you're a contractor. That is no longer applicable to the 21st century situation. I mean, you have 50 shades of gray in between. And I think we're going to have to figure out globally how to deal with you know, the difference between black and white in that respect. Mm -hmm. And we've always complained here in Europe about the complexity of unions and trade unions and labor laws. But honestly, in the US, it's no picnic either. And I mean, the complexity, I mean, people who complain about unions in Europe have no idea how, you know, the Teamsters work in the US. So I think this is something where we're going to have to probably look at this beyond the scale of just one particular country. How are we going to deal with that from a labor perspective? The second element is that it is still worrying for a company like Uber that despite Uber Eats grew like crazy during the pandemic, that Uber Eats is still not a profitable business. So it brings the question, how long can we tolerate something where we hope that it's going to generate profit, but how long do you sustain that? And of course, the biggest example of that, which has shown that it is an opportunity, is Amazon. I remember you know, 15 years ago when you had Amazon bashers who said, no, this is terrible. I mean, they only believe in the long term. There will be no long term. They'll be dead before they actually turn a profit. Look at Amazon now. So I think it is possible. But again, with the craziness of the stock market out there, with basically the only way that people can actually hope for a return is they make big bets like this on a company that might in the future really you know, generate some returns. So you know, I'm pretty confident that they can tackle the challenges. And I'm really surprised that the new CEO is doing such a really good job. Do you think that Uber could be waiting secretly for self-driving cars to happen to circumvent these problems? We've talked about this with Uber on a few occasions, what the impact of self-driving would be. And of course, they did quite a lot of investments in self-driving technologies. They had a huge, huge 
multi-billion dollar investment in their own vehicles in a cooperation with Volvo. And they basically abandoned that because I think on the one hand, the self-driving technology is taking a lot longer to actually become mainstream and mature. And they really saw themselves still very much as a human business, uh, even going forward. So I don't think they're secretly waiting. They've tried it and they said, not at this moment. Yeah, so in China, they're continuing with Didi, the competitor of Uber in China. So that's where self-driving is really on top of the agenda. But you're talking about the unions and the employee problems and all the other issues they have. There's one more that Didi has in China, which Uber even hasn't gotten, which is about data security, privacy. And because data is becoming an, a more national thing, it's all about how do you manage the data when it goes cross-border and how do you do that? And so Didi is really hit big time on data security and data privacy. And so I think if Uber would have the same problem, I mean, they would be back in the red any day. So uh, I think this is still another problem they will need to solve over time. Let's move to our last big topic, everything that is related to the war for talent. Laurence, Amazon has been struggling with data. They've been in the news multiple times that they are doing a bad job towards their employees. Are they trying to change that now? I, I saw that they're trying to hire 125,000 new people. Are they applying a new strategy to avoid another bad PR outblow there? Yeah, I think indeed after introducing a $15 minimum wage in 2018, Amazon has now been raising its average starting wage to $18. And obviously the reason for this rise in wages is the same reason why other companies like Costco and Target and Walmart have been raising their wages in the past year, which is of course the brutal war for talent. And in fact, people even call this the Amazon effect, by which they mean that nearby competitors have no choice but to follow suit when Amazon raises its wages. And this has, of course, everything to do with the fact that it is the second largest private employer in the U.S. just after Walmart. So it's fantastic to see that blue-collar wages are finally increasing in fairness under pressure of the markets. But we all know that wages are only part of the story in, in the war for talent, one, and two, the quest for creating more equality. And the good news is that here, too, Amazon is making great efforts. As of the beginning of next year, for instance, uh, it will cover the entire future college tuition costs of its workers. And it has also been adding several new and, and free internal upskilling programs. And so... These career advancement opportunities come on top of many other existing benefits like medical and dental and vision coverage and parental leave and childcare and many others. So it's clear that Amazon understands how to bow its employees. But just like you said, Stephen, it just needs just <laughs> needs to learn how to treat them better as well. Like cynics are saying that the job raises and the tuition fees announcements are just part of a big PR stunt to cover up the controversy around the treatment of its warehouse and then delivery workers and around the failed unionizing attempts. Um, so whatever the case, we obviously need to applaud these positive announcements, but while at the same time still expect that the company should work on its treatments of employees. And just as a small side note, I want to add that these announcements may also play a role in its further monopolization because smaller competitors too have a hard time attracting talent and the fact that Amazon has the margins to offer them so much better conditions could result in even more difficulties for the, the smaller players. Like these types of category kings aren't just magnets for customers, they are just as much magnets for employees. And this could have a significant effect on the, the general innovation of their market and even on education. It's fascinating to see how short-term tactics and long-term strategies are in the balance here towards, I mean, employees as well. I think, um, Stephen, what you wrote, offer you can't refuse towards customers. I think the same counts for employees. Where do you want to work? And of course, chapter you, you... seven, chapter seven. Really. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I mean, it's been a few years. I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, but. I get enthusiastic about it. It goes a little wild. I, I mean, if you're talking like brilliant basics, one of the initiatives that Amazon also took was they no longer do drug tests if you want to go work for there. So, I mean, that, that shows you like the short-term tactics that are needed to make sure that they have a shitload of people that they basically need. So there you also see that friction of 
yes, we're investing in technology. And, and I think, Peter, you just explained that point for Uber as well. Like, it's a huge challenge to just make sure that you hire enough people. So how far are you going to go? And how are you going to balance those short-term initiatives versus a longer-term challenge? I think if you look at Walmart, they've been investing in education for their associates for years as well. And they're now thinking as well, like, how can we be regenerative for our employees and make sure that they have a sort of 360 service if you work here? And the war for talent is not going anywhere, I think. It's only going to intensify. And also with the pandemic, of course, it has become a global war. Um, also to your point earlier, Peter, but if you look at the UK right now, all the big tech companies are hiring like crazy over there, the Apples, the Amazons, and they're actually complaining like the local VCs or, or startups are complaining, like they're, they're just running away with all our coders. So I think as a company, you really have to make sure, of course, that you have brilliant basics, that there are the basics in terms of salary, education, etc. in place. But on the other hand, you just really have to realize you have to create that offer you can't refuse for employees or they will just go somewhere else. And that's something that the big tech companies will have to address as well. I, I do think we might have to make a difference here between, you know, I think the war for labor and the war for talent. Because on the one hand, when you see the Amazons and the Walmarts and the Ubers having to tap into a labor market where they need a lot of people to do relatively simple tasks, that is one complexity. The other complexity is, you know, extremely talented individuals with maybe 5x or 10x productivity compared to others, which is something that companies are fighting for like crazy. And I, I think those are two dimensions of a complex labor market that I think are fascinating. When you look at the war for talent, I think this is something where COVID is accelerating that, is making it even more stringent. And honestly, I take data science as an example. Data scientists are very few and we're still not producing enough. But if I see now the competitiveness between retailers and banks, between governments that are all looking to dive into that same you know, talent pool, I'd love to be a data scientist at this moment. You could just have your pick and probably you know, have a wonderful way to chart the next couple of years in your career. Because I think the post-pandemic uh, war for talent is going to be brutal, in my opinion. Yeah, and I agree. It's a huge difference, labor versus talent, as you mentioned, but I think it's an opportunity as well. If we look beyond it to just being at a monetary, how do we attract them in the short term, but also how do we make labor's life better? You have the skills gap there. If technology is, is I mean, augmenting automation, etc., we have to figure out which jobs that these people will do as well. So I think as a company, if they're looking into this and making sure that these people also have that future and help them with that. I think that should be part of um, that evolution as well. But uh, brutal it will be, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think you have to look at Asia as the next uh, big thing because three out of four engineers are coming from Asia these days. And, and so we don't always realize when it's about the war for talent that the center of gravity of talent is moving towards the East. And so companies uh, in the West will have to accept and with COVID, of course, that's very easy to have them work from anywhere, but we'll have to accept that more and more people will actually be coming from that part of the region. And I think some companies do, but not all. All right. Well, guys, I suggest we close it down for this month's episode um, with Pascal's latest remark. I want to thank all of the participants here in the podcast, and I want to thank you for, for listening. As mentioned in the beginning, if you have a question for us, uh, when you see something in the news that you want more explanation about, let us know. Send us a tweet, LinkedIn message, and we'll, we'll tackle that next month. And hopefully we'll hear you and see you again next month for a new episode of Radar. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.